Well done, tech team. That would have been very anticlimactic had we not seen the end of that. Uh, but I love that, that visual, this idea of the guy standing ready to take on the entire army facing imminent death, but he knows this is what I must do. And at the last second, his army crashing in around him. And that's the image that we had in our head as we talk about today the phrase and charges into the fray. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Job 39. Uh, but uh, I want us to have a little bit of context before we jump right into the passage. Um, we're in the middle of our Dark Horse series. And we're in week three of six of this series. And it's honestly been so good for me and for my heart and my soul. Um, just as we talk about this idea of a spirit of the overcomer. Right? That we've been given a spirit of the overcomer. We are the pièce de résistance of God's creation. And we have been given attributes and gifts and strengths that we can celebrate and move forward in. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're in this series. And Dark Horse actually originated, the phrase originated uh, in the 19th century around horse racing. And we use it uh, in sports a lot nowadays. But um, it originated there and it was to call out the horse that nobody had any expectations of. Nobody thought would win, right? In horse racing, there's a front runner. There's someone who's expected to win. But the dark horse is the one who comes from nowhere, defeats all the odds, and is the victor. And as we're talking about the series of, of overcoming those maybe false expectations that were put on you, as Jay talked about last week, maybe you've been told lies or something that, that kept you down, that kept you defeated, or maybe you're like me, you're incredibly self critical, right? You're your own worst critic and you just keep yourself beat down all the time. And uh, the reason this series has been so empowering and good for me is I've actually, just in the last year and a half of being here in Michigan, um, I've gone through two separate, like four to six week bouts with insecurity, like deep, almost mentally debilitating insecurity when it comes to thinking about work. Like everything I do sucks and I'm terrible and this means nothing and it's not enough. It's not good enough. It's not enough. I didn't do and and just wrestling through with this idea of empowering. We are humanity and we've been given strengths and gifts and abilities that we can enter into. We can celebrate and we can live out of as we live in the spirit of the overcomer. And so, uh, before we jump right into Job 39, that's at the end of the book of Job, I want to actually start back in chapter 1, again, a little bit of context at where this, this passage is coming to us from. Because you see, at the beginning of Job, God is sitting on his throne and the angels are presenting themselves to him. And then we see this, I imagine, large, overwhelming, dark figure, the fallen angel of Satan, approaches God. And God goes, have you seen my boy Job? Man, he's righteous. Have you seen him? He's awesome. He's my son. And Satan's like, man, he's only righteous because you've given so much stuff. You've taken care of him. And then I imagine with a deceit in his voice and a smirk across his face, he's like, but if you take away all of his stuff, surely he'll curse you. And so God, I, I think in a way to say, Satan, let me show you who I am and let me show you who my children are. I'll tell you what, you can take everything away from Job, but you can't touch Job. 
So in chapter 1, we actually see Satan cause nearby enemies to come and to take away Job's livestock, his livelihood, all of his different animals that he had in three different instances. And they killed all the servants except for one from each instance that came and reported back what happened to Job. And then Satan caused a great wind to come by uh, Job's son's house when all of Job's kids were eating in that house together, eating a meal together, and the house collapsed in on itself, killing all of Job's kids. And at the end of chapter 1, we find Job tearing his clothes as a sign of mourning, tearing his clothes, but he never curses God and he never sins. He actually says, we will worship God. And then in chapter 2, Satan's back in God's throne room, and God's like, did you see my boy Job? He's righteous, and he's obedient. And Satan, again, coming back, is like, yeah, but you take away all the man's stuff. As long as he still has his health, he won't curse you. Take away that, and he'll curse you. And God said, okay, I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you inflict upon Job, but you can't kill him. That's my one rule, you can't kill, kill Job. And so Satan actually causes these sores to come up on, all over Job's body. And they are so painful that the scriptures tell us that he actually took broken pottery and scratched at the sores just to try to alleviate some of the pain. And his wife, towards the end of chapter 2, comes to him and says, Why are you holding on to your integrity? Just curse God and, be, and die and be done with it. And Job essentially responds, like, You foolish woman, do we not celebrate when we receive, why do we not celebrate and rejoice even when things are taken away, when they are not good? And then there's this 36 chapter long dialogue that happens between Job and a few of his friends. And just a little precursor, his friends use a lot of words. They say a lot, but none of it's actually good. Like they're not saying anything wise. Don't nudge the person next to you. That's not cool to do, right? But they, they talk a lot, but not a lot of it's important. Not a lot of it ha- has a lot of weight to it. And we, we hear that in God's response at the end of Job. But they talk, right? And Job never curses God and never sins. But he's talking out of some frustration, out of some anger, right? And then we see God break his silence in, in chapter 38. We see God's response to Job. And he actually speaks to him out of a storm and just... So, you know, if I was in Job's shoes, I'd probably need to change my pants after this. But just listen how God speaks to Job, and and just in verse 2 and verse 3. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, for I will question you, and you will answer me. You see, he's putting Job in his place. He's saying, Job, you're talking, you don't understand what you're talking about. You're not God. And then he goes on this actually beautiful word imagery, this discourse of like, where were you when I set the foundations in place? And probably my favorite line, he goes, can you loosen Orion's belt? Just the idea God can loosen Orion. That's crazy. Can you loosen Orion's belt? And, And he's putting Job in his place, but at the same time, he begins to elevate the created order. And that's where we find ourselves in 39, 19 through 24, right? He's giving attributes. He's giving dignity. He's giving character and strength to a horse. He is elevating the created order. But we know we as humans were created in the image and likeness of God and given dominion over the animals. So should we not have just as much, if not more, 
more attributes and glory and honor and strength as the horse? And so on one hand, he's putting Job in his place, but inadvertently he's elevating humanity. And that's where we find ourselves in 39, 19 through 24 saying, what are the characteristics? What are the strengths? What are the attributes that he's giving to the horse that we should at least have those, if not more? And how do these apply to our daily life? So let's jump in. 39, 19 through 21. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength, and charges into the fray. That's where we're going to land today. And charges into the fray. Jay said he didn't trust me with any more than five words, so that's all I got. No, but seriously, we feel like there's potency and there's truth within these five words that we need to discuss. And I hope that this 35-minute monologue turns into a dialogue in your week with your loved ones or your life groups to, to figure out how does this tangibly apply to the reality in which I sit and live in. And charges into the fray. When I first read that, I instantly, when I hear fray, I think like my clothes are fraying, right? Like... They're fraying away. And so I'm like, okay, what do they mean when they say charging in the fray? Like, you're charging into unraveling clothing? Like, but the Hebrew word there probably would have been better translated as charging into the weaponry. Charging at the military equipment. And it, essentially the horse knows where the battle's going and is charging right at it. Once I knew that, I became aware that God's calling us to do Difficult things. We must enter into difficult and press into difficult situations. We've, we've got to charge at things that are difficult and challenging. But we don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like difficult. But you might be saying, well, Shay, I don't even know like, what I'm charging at. Like, how do I know the will of God? Like, I don't, I don't know, should, should I buy this house or should I, should I keep renting? Haley and I were in that uh, a little less than a year ago. Should, should we buy or should we just keep the apartment? Should we buy? Should we keep? And really, try, okay, what does God have for us? Spending time in prayer. Or may, maybe you're, you're faced with the opportunity of a new job. Should I take this job? I'm kind of done with my job, but maybe I need to stay there. Maybe I should find a third job. What, what, God, what do you have for me? What's your will for me? I don't, I don't know what to do. And, and we feel so de- debilitated by, I'm, I'm not sure, and sometimes we actually never make a decision, which is a decision in itself. But, but can I just offer you this? Let's take one of those scenarios. Let's take the job. If you have a current job, but you also have a job opportunity, or maybe there's a third job you're wondering about. Can you glorify God in all three of those jobs? My next question would be, would you be using your giftings and abilities that God has uniquely designed you for? Could you use those in all, of your job, all three of those jobs? If the answer was yes. Then I'd say, is God giving you a clear, specific calling to take one of the jobs? No. Then is he giving you a choice? Because sometimes I think that we make God's will a tightrope that we have to put one foot perfectly in front of the other when maybe, just maybe, it's a four-lane highway. He's saying, you, you can move over here and still be in my will. You can, you can slide over here and still be in my will. But just, just choose and charge forward. And he's God if you're truly, if, 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 
it is truly your heart's desire to glorify God with all that you have and with all that you are, he will redirect you if he needs to. But we've got to charge into the difficult. We've got to charge into the unknown. I was talking with John earlier this week. We had a mutual uh, professor at the college that we went to. And his name was Wilbur Williams. And I always feel like I have to say, like, Wilbur Williams. He's quite literally, I think, 90 years old. Um, The uh, most godly man ever and the deepest voice of all time. Um, But he he told John, I hadn't heard this story before, but he told John that uh, one time he heard the audible voice of God. He said, I never heard it another time. And, And part of me thinks, like, well, the closer you get to God, don't you think that would be the time you hear the audible voice of God? But Wilbur's response was, the closer I got to God, the more I began to realize that my heart was aligning with him and God was trusting me more than I trusted myself. That if, if it's truly your desire to do God's will, to live a righteous life, you're not making decision out of selfish behavior or motives. If it's that truly is your desire, maybe, just maybe in those moments, he's giving you a choice. And you're not going to fall out of God's will. Now, I'll be very clear. Sometimes God asks us to do very specific things. And to not do those things we feel like he's asking us to do would be called disobedience. I hate these situations. So one of the things that's actually really difficult for me that's a part of my job, so I'm learning to do better, is I hate introducing myself to people I don't know. I tr- it's like something I have to work up. And then I'm around Jason, Ryan, and John who are like the, tri- the trinity of outgoingness, Right? And it's just like, come on, man, that's not fair. But it's like I have to build up and work energy to go to introduce myself to somebody. But occasionally I'll get the nudge from the spirit, like, hey, introduce yourself to that person. Just go say hi. Go tell them your name. Have you ever stepped into an elevator and there's that one other person in this four-by-four metal box that you're traveling upward with, right? And there's this little nudge, like, just, just say hi. Well, I mean, it probably would be good to acknowledge the fact that there's another human being in this awkward four-by-four square, right? But, but the, if I don't respond in the moment, I make excuses. I'm really good at justifying. So I can, I can justify out of that scenario, right? Well, they're going to think I'm the weird guy on the elevator talking to them. Or it's only a 30-second ride. I can handle a little bit of science. They're good. They're on their phone. They don't want me to distract. They don't know me. They don't care to know me. And, I just, and all of a sudden, ding, elevator doors open. They walk off, doors close. And it's like, sorry, God, I got you next time, right? I owe you one. I should, probably should have done it. But I, I work out and I don't press in those specific times where he's calling you saying, no, you, you need to do this. You need to press into the situation. You need to challenge yourself. You need to, to step out of something, of yourself. Step out of your bubble, your comfort zone. We don't like to be uncomfortable. But as I was replaying this verse in my head, and charges in the fray, the word and would not leave me. Last Sunday and Monday in particular, it was just, and charges into the fray. And charges into the fray. Like, and doesn't even get capitalized in the titles of movies. Like, it's not, it's not an important word. It's not that big of a deal. But I couldn't get it out of my head. And I realized it's because it connects back to the verse before it that Jay talked about last week. Talking about the horse where it says, it paused fiercely, rejoicing in its strength, 
and charges into the fray. You see, they go together. They might not happen simultaneously, but they come as a package deal. Because here's the problem. If you just rejoice, if you just stay in the rejoicing, like you could be in your room, you're like, yeah, I'm so awesome. And then it's a narcissistic party, right? You're just like in your room, you're like, I am so awesome. I just watched Lego movie for the first time this week, so that's why. It's a good one if you haven't seen it. It's actually really clever. Anyways, um, but it is. It's a little bit of like, hey, yeah, I'm so cool. But we are called to and charge into the fray. But, but you also can't just charge without the first step, right? It's a package deal. Because if you just charge without the first step, you're going to second guess every decision you try to make. It's going to look a lot less like charging, a lot more like Bambi trying to walk, right? Like, I don't, what, am I, I'm so, I think, well, I don't. But if you begin with centering yourself before God and recognizing that you have been given strengths and abilities that you can celebrate and you can rejoice in, and then center yourself and recognize that they come from my loving Heavenly Father and set yourself before God, then that gives you the ability to then charge into the fray, to press into the difficult, to enter into the unknown. They come one in the same. You see, there's a conviction that has to take place before the action. Because if you just, if you just charge at something, but you have no conviction, no understanding of the why, you might lose hope and you just might become another statistic. But if you allow the truth of God's word to fully uh, embed in the depths of your soul and in your heart, and you allow the truth and the conviction that he offers to us, that he places in our lives, then we have the reason why we can rejoice in who we are, we can celebrate who he is and who we are, and then we can charge into the difficult. But we don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to be uncomfortable. I think it's actually human instinct a little bit to avoid hurt, to avoid pain, to avoid difficulty. Right? We look at, we look through the Bible even. Adam and Eve, they hid from God rather than interacting with God after they sinned. Cain, he he chose to not bring his first fruits to God, probably out of a sense of security to make sure, I got to make sure I have enough before I take this to God. Abraham, at the request of his wife, sleeps with his wife's servant to have a son rather than wait for the promise of a son with Sarah. We see Moses question God, make excuses to God, and eventually just say, "Uh, can you send somebody else to free your people from Egypt? Not really feeling up to that task. We see David, rather than confess his sin of adultery, have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed in the front lines of battle. We see Jonah run as far away from the place that God was calling him as he possibly could. And we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees, saying, Father, if your will can still take place, but I don't have to go through this, then let your cup pass from me. It's human instinct, right? We could, ah, rather avoid that. But, but there's times where the conviction 
has to take place to allow us to propel us into discomfort. Because we don't like to be uncomfortable. We'll pay a lot of money to be comfortable. Actually. Right? Because it's, it's uncomfortable to admit that maybe I don't have the resources or the finances right now to have the updated technology. So I'll just go into a little bit of credit card debt so I can have the updated phone so that my friends don't keep making these weird jabs about, why do you have a four-year-old phone? Well, I can't. Because it's more uncomfortable to say, I just can't afford it right now. I'll wait till the timing's right. We'll pay money for comfort. Especially in the U.S. and other first world countries. We like comfort. We enjoy comfort. We want comforts. But can, can I just say this? My fear is that too often as Christ followers, we desire comforts over godliness. We desire comfort over obedience. We desire comforts over the state of our soul. And I'm sorry, but comfort's not worth that much to me. Now, do I struggle with comfort? Absolutely. But I, I want to charge into the difficult. I want to charge into the awkward. I want to charge in the uncomfortable. When God's pressing in, when he's challenging me to, I want to go there because I know that's what I'm called and needed to do. You guys have probably heard of uh, this guy, Jesus. Um, you know, he's the one in all the paintings with the lamb draped over his shoulder, blonde hair, blue eyes. He's a really quiet, timid guy. Um, one person got my sarcasm. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, anyways, you guys must not be awake yet. But um, in John chapter 2, we see Jesus enter into the temple courts. And, and he, he goes to the temple. Now, we know at this time, post-death and resurrection, that the curtain was torn in two. Right? And so we have access directly to God. We don't have to go through the priesthood. Um, but at this time... The temple was the housing place of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was the physical manifestation of the presence of God. So the temple was the, the dwelling place, the house of God. And we see in John chapter 2, we see Jesus enter into the temple. And a scene is unfolding where he is seeing people turning the temple courts into a money, lucrative money-making business. And Jesus fashions a whip out of cords and begins to drive out the animals. And I imagine some of the backsides of people as they're running away, as he's flipping tables, causing money and bookkeeping papers to go everywhere. And yelling, stop turning my father's house into a market! Get out! You see, Jesus is okay with some confrontation. He called the religious leaders brood of vipers. At times, he asks for it and invokes it. He's willing to press in because there was a conviction. It's interesting to note, if you read John chapter 2, it says that the disciples all of a sudden remembered when he drives the people out of the temple. The disciples remembered Psalm 69 where it says, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, there was, there was a truth, there was a belief, there was an understanding in Jesus' heart and his whole body that your house, zeal for your house will consume me that drove him to this place to say, you will not desecrate my father's house. I won't let it happen. And he pressed in, he entered into a difficult conversation and I imagine a little bit awkward of a, of a discussion afterward with the disciples, but he was willing to press in because of the conviction in his heart, what he knew he had to do and where he had to go. 
So parents, let me say this to you. And I find it highly ironic that on a day of talking about entering into difficult conversation, I actually genuinely feel hesitant saying this because you could say, Shay, you're a punk 26-year-old who's not a parent, so whatever you have to say, you're wrong or you don't know, and you'd be correct because I don't know. I'm not a parent. But I've had enough conversation with parents, and honestly, as a student ministries pastor, can I just say this? And I, I might make some of you mad, but if I'm not making anybody mad, maybe I'm not doing my job right. Parents... Enter into healthy conflict with your kids? Stop being willingly ignorant. It's going to be awkward. It might be tough. But I guarantee you the conversation that will take place now is a lot easier. Even though they might not respond well, it's a lot easier than having the conversation 20 years from now when you're having a very different conversation. Do you need to talk to your kids about sex, about drugs, about porn, about self-defeatist attitude, about self-harm, about their conceited or prideful uh, demeanor, about bullying? What conversations do you need to enter into with your kids that you need to press into their lives? Because the Bible tells us we need to raise up our kids in the way that they should go, not raise up your kids in the way they want to go. Extremely different. The Bible also says don't exasperate your kids. So there's a fine balance, I get that. But are you willing to press into the conversations or do you just pretend like it's not happening and ignore it? Are you willing to go there with your kids because you know through psychology and through research that healthy conflict actually benefits both parties? Are you willing to go there with your kids because it's the best thing for their cognitive development and their spiritual growth? Ask the hard questions you might say well if they respond this certain way i have no idea what to say pray pray a lot and then charge into the difficult go it is your spiritual obligation as a parent enter in have conversation spouses do you do this with your spouse do, do you have tough conversation? If they say something that hurts you, are you the spouse that just reacts and yells back? Well, at least if I hurt them, then we both hurt each other. We give it two hours, cool down, and then we're good, and we just move on, do a little under the rug, right? And this could be with someone you're dating. This could even be with siblings. Or maybe you're the person that you get hurt and you recoil, and so you kind of back away and kind of keep your distance for a couple days. And then you're just like, eh, I'll just passively, aggressively post something on Facebook. It'll be all good, right? We'll just keep moving. <laughs> now, I can speak a little bit to this because I was the, I was the pastor's kid. And I, was, I had to always be okay, right? Oh, I'm okay. No, I'm good. I'm okay. I'm good. Well, I took that into my marriage. And uh, so even when I felt hurt, when I felt pain uh, from Haley, no, I'm okay. No, really, I'm good. I'm good. And for the most part, there was a part of me that was good, like I could move on. But it buried deep. So I'd be, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Explode. I'm good. No, I'm good. No, I'm good. Explode, right? And I would go through these phases of like just suppressing it. No, 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 really, I'm okay. But then I would harbor it and I'd keep it there. And then I'd lash out and I'd blow up at her. Just in case you're wondering, not a healthy form of communication. Okay. <laughs> We had to work through some of that. I had to open up because it, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable to say, well, actually, 
what you said triggered an insecurity I was feeling all day at work, and that's why it hurt, and that's why I got mad, and I know it's not right, it wasn't your fault, but it just, it tri- like, that's uncomfortable. But are you willing to go there with your spouse? Are you willing to go there with a loved one, whether that's a close friend or a sibling, whatever it is, are you willing to go there because you want to say, I want to press in with you and take this step together? Especially for spouses, we're unified before God. Are you wanting to take the step as one, or are you just driving a wedge farther and farther apart from each other? Are you asking difficult questions? You single people thought you were off the hook, didn't you? But this goes for everyone. Are you willing to do this with your friends? Are you willing to speak truth in a situation, either about them or about you or just about the situation in general? Are are you willing to go there with them? Now, some of you might have friends that don't believe in God. And so how could I expect them to live the same lifestyle that I'm seeking to live because God has called me to live a righteous life? You can't expect that from them, right? I don't expect you to expect that from them. But are you willing to stand in the gap between God and them? Are you willing to stand up for the convictions in your heart that God is asking you to stand up for, that God is asking you to hold true to, or do you fall succumb to peer pressure? You know, do you say, guys, I know you like to go there after work, but I just, I'm trying to protect my spouse and, and my thoughts, and I just, I can't go there. They might not understand, but are you willing to stand up for the convictions in your heart? Or, or even bullying, because I know that happens at work just as much as it happens at school. Are you in a place, in a circumstance where you can actually enter into that and say, hey, I mean, even if they're not a Christ follower, you can say that's probably against their code of conduct, but also they're another human being, and that ain't cool. Are you in a position, in a place to be able to do that? To go there, to ask the hard questions, to challenge the status quo, because that's not okay. As Jesus declared running through the temple, this is not okay. Get out. You will not desecrate my father's house. I shared earlier about David and how he, he uh, had Uriah killed rather than confess his sin of adultery. But what I love about the story is Nathan was a prophet at the time of the king. And Nathan, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, enters into David's house. And he tells him this story, it's, an, it's a parable, where there's somebody clearly in the wrong. Like they've, they've messed up. And David is fuming about it. I mean, livid. He is ticked off. He's yelling. He's like, they should do this. And they, and, and, and I mean, he's going off. And Nathan just stops and goes, David, that's you. Are you willing to actually hold your Christian brothers and sisters accountable? Because in the church culture, not just impact, but church wide, we have the saying we like to call accountability groups or accountability partners that a lot of people will have. Um, but they actually don't hold each other accountable. You show up, you kind of vomit all the things that you did that mess up that week, and it's like, we'll do better next week. Peace out. Later. Are you willing to actually go there with your Christian brothers and sisters? Because I think that can sometimes actually be harder than with the people who don't claim to believe in God. Are you willing to actually hold them accountable? Are you willing, God can fight for himself, but are you willing to fight for your soul and for the soul of those around you? To say, I know we're human, we're going to make mistakes, I get that, but 
we've got to figure this out. We've got to attack this. What do we need to remove from your life to help you succeed? Or what do we need to add to it to help you succeed? What are we going to do? Are you willing to hold those accountable around you to the truths and the convictions? Not just that you have, but the truths of the word. Are you, are you willing to go there with those around you? Are you willing to stand up for the truth and the conviction? There's a, a story in history that I, I love. It's, it's like a church history thing. But uh, there's an old church father named Athanasius. And Athanasius lived at the end of the 200s and the beginning of the 300s. And there's another guy at the same time, another theologian at the time named Arius. And he believed in Arianism. He kind of found it. But it was this belief that Jesus was not the eternal divine part of the triune God. Jesus was born as a man and then God imparted himself onto Jesus. It might sound confusing. Huge ramifications with that, right? And Arius actually had people on his side, like some of the religious leaders and there was a point in the debate where Arius was like, essentially, Athanasius was like, bro, everybody agrees with me. Like, why, why are you still staying stubborn? Why are you holding true? And he says something. The Latin is Athanasius contra mundum, and it means then an Athanasius against the world. Because there was a conviction in the heart of Athanasius that said, no, I can't, I can't relent to this. I know that Jesus is the eternal triune member of the triune God. And it allowed him through that conviction to press into a difficult conversation and a tough debate and to stand firm for what he knew and he believed. Are you willing to fight? Is, are you willing to press in to difficult conversations? Are you willing to charge into the fray? Now, I've been talking a lot about willingly entering into the fray. Willingly charge and entering into difficult situations. But let's be real. There's a lot of situations and difficulties that find us that we didn't ask for and we sure don't want and it just sucks. Right? And Haley and I met this girl, Lexi, in college who found herself in one of these scenarios. She had two sons. Um, Her second son was Charlie, and he was born in, I think it was April 2014. And he was born with a lot of complications. And within 24 hours of being born, Charlie had his first open heart surgery. The doctors didn't know if he'd make it, and he made it through that first surgery. Um, they began to gain confidence, and Charlie was doing better, but obviously still a long road ahead. And at two months and some odd days old, Charlie had his second open-heart surgery. And Lexi was a blogger, so she's blogging months down the road, reflecting back on this second surgery of Charlie's. So she's literally sitting in the waiting room, two-month, however old, son, in the operating room, and she posts to Facebook a, essentially a prayer. She said... Even if the worst happens and I lose Charlie, God is still good. And I'll be honest, sometimes when people say that, I'm like, don't be flippant with that. Because a lot of times we like to say that when things are going well. Yeah, God's good all the time. All the time God's good, right? It's the old church saying. Don't. But I know she wasn't flipping with it because here's how she followed up. She said, God is still good. And then she said, it's not something I say with excitement on my face. It's a fact I can carry with me, a promise I am holding him to. 
You see, there was this conviction and this truth from the word of God so deeply embedded in Lexi's soul that she knew no matter what happened, God is still good. No matter what, and we can't let Satan win those battles of difficulties because oftentimes in those moments when difficult situations come at us that we didn't want or ask for, it's easy to give Satan some, some footholds. It's easy to give him some ground because it doesn't feel like God's good in those moments. But when we sin ourselves before God, remember, when we sin ourselves before God and we can rejoice in who we are, we can say, God, you are good and you have made me your creation. You have given me strengths and abilities. Even though I didn't ask for this, even though I don't want this, I'm going to charge into the difficult conversation. I'm going to charge at the difficult and tough situation that I have at hand. I want to go after it. Because that is what you're calling me to do, to charge into the fray. There's an old saying that says, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And I don't think that that's true. Maybe it's the safest place for your soul, maybe that's what they meant, but... I don't think that that's the safest place for us to be. Because God's going to ask you to enter into some difficult th- difficult things, some hard things, unsafe maybe emotionally or mentally or physically that are challenging, that are, that are hard. And C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia speaking of Aslan, but speaking of Jesus, because Aslan was a representation of Jesus in the books, he says he's not safe, but he's good. So while the safest place might not be at the center of God's will, the good place for you and I to be is at the center of God's will and he desires for us to charge into the difficult to fight for the souls of those around us and our own soul now you guys are eleven fifteen, which means that you guys are like a lot of the young people that like to sleep in and come to church a little later so you won't judge me for this okay I have a tattoo um so Anyways, um, but anyways, I have, I have a tattoo, and it just, it's Hebrew, it stands for, or it's Ish Milchama, but it means man of war, and it's a reminder to me to say that this is not always easy, this is not always what I want to do, but it is a reminder that I have to fight, the spiritual battle is a fight, Paul even writes, fight the good fight, now that doesn't mean life has to always be difficult, life has to always be hard. Right? You can, you can love your job. I love my job. You can enjoy where you live. I love being in Lowell, as crazy as it sounds. You can, uh, you can love your family. You can laugh and have fun with your family. But at times, you're going to have to do something difficult because Jesus did say you have to pick up your cross each and every day to follow me. So that tells me that a part of me has to die to myself each and every day to enter into the difficult things. And I want to charge into the fray. Because it's the best for them and it's the best for me. It leads to spiritual depth and growth. When we press into difficult conversations, when we enter into places we don't necessarily want to be, but we step out in faith. Because it's a calling on our lives. And I want to be a church with the spirit of the overcomer on each and every one of us. Rejoice in who you are. Rejoice in who God has made you to be and rejoice in your strengths. And together, 
let's charge into the fray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your glory and your honor. We thank you for who you are. And Father, I I just ask that if there's any way collectively right now that we can simply rejoice in who you've created each and every one of us to be, the unique, unique creation by you. And we sin ourselves before you, recognizing that you are the giver of all the gifts and all that we have. And then collectively, may we go out today ready to charge into the fray, ready to press into the difficult, to willingly go where you are asking us to go. Because we desire to glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.